We're looking at Genesis chapter 1 today. Now, one of the things that we, um, we talked about last week is the importance of understanding Genesis as a whole. But I think it's really important to get Genesis 1 right. Why is that? Because there are some fundamental things that are covered in Genesis chapter 1 that if you get these things wrong, boy, you're going to get the whole thing about worldview wrong. Now, there are a lot of believers who do get it wrong, and they're still saved. This is not an issue of whether or not you know someone is saved, but it's about having the right worldview. And if you have the right worldview, then you can make your way through this world as a believer just that much easier. You can understand the big picture just that much better. You know, if, if you get this wrong, your view of God is problematic. If you get this wrong, your view of man is problematic. Your view of the household is problematic. Your view of plants, animals, the environment... All that's problematic. And we talked about the problem that happens when you look at things through the wrong lens. If you want a Christian worldview, then you have to look at everything through the lens of faith. Unfortunately, you know, people make the mistake of trying to look at everything through the lens of science. Now, you know, from the time I was five years old, I knew that I was going to be some kind of scientist. Okay, so as a result, I got a few engineering degrees. And one of the things I did was I became an Air Force officer, and I tested aircraft and spacecraft because, you know, that was the kind of thing I loved. And you know what I did not figure on was that the Lord was going to drag me out of engineering and bring me into full-time Christian ministry. And then, once I did that, what I didn't figure was that he was going to drag me out of that and bring me back to engineering. <laughs> you know, so, so you know, it's, it, it's, it's funny this, this, this journey that he has me on, but I guess it's also funny the journey he has each and every one of you on as well. Well, you know, one of the, one of the major problems that, that, that people have for developing a proper Christian worldview is, well, they look at everything through the lens of science, whether or not they understand science. You know, um, I knew plenty of guys when I was in seminary who had no problem believing that Jesus could rise from the dead, that he could walk on water, but they couldn't believe well, that he split the Red Sea open or that he created the world in seven days. Now, I don't know about you, but there seems to be a little problem with me for that. I mean, because after all, if he's God, is there anything that's too great for him? I hope not. In Jeremiah um, 31, um, verse 20, 32, verse 27, he says, 
He asks just this question. He says, I'm God. I created everything. Is there anything too great, too difficult for me? I hope that you can answer that question with, no, there's nothing too great for him. So, you know, um, people make the mistake of, of looking at everything through science. And, and there's, in, in theology, I, I, I see that there's two problems that we can make. One is we let science drive our interpretation of, science, of, of, of the word of God and everything else in the Christian life. That is a mistake. Here's the other mistake, where we say that it has no impact, that it has nothing to do with reality. You know, here's the thing. Science is an empirical, inductive approach to knowledge. By empirical, what I mean is that it's measurable. You can use your senses to gather information. By inductive, what I mean that it is a kind of logic that is based on probability. So here's the thing. By its very definition, science cannot provide certainty. And you know what? Science is only concerned with what is temporal. You want to know what can provide Certainty? This. Because it speaks not just to the temporal. It speaks to the eternal. And folks, that's where our hearts and minds have to be. You know, I was talking to my Sunday school class today about whether we, we live in the flesh or whether we live in the spirit. Because if we're living in the flesh, all we see is the temporal. But if we are being led by the Spirit, folks, we, we, we see the eternal. And, and, and we see beyond what, what just science can deliver. Now, you know, um, there's, a, there's a, a, a man by the name of John Polkinghorne. Any of you ever hear of John Polkinghorne? Yeah, Jeff, Jeff has heard of him. John Polkinghorne um, has a, a, a has a PhD in physics. He was a member of the the Royal uh, Royal Society of, of Physics in England. He is a not only a professor of mathematical um, um, physics at, at at Cambridge, but you know he became president of that particular school there. At Cambridge, and he holds holds a position called complementarity. And one of the things that that, that he talks about is the, is the fact that um, science and faith are two complementary lenses to understand all of reality with. That they're not in conflict, and that really they should work together. And one of the things that he, he, he really argues against is, is those who take an overly strong view of science. 
And a lot of times, those guys are atheists. And, and so one of the things that he talks about is he, he sees the need of complementarity because he says theism makes more sense than atheism because, number one, the intelligibility of the universe. Number two, the fine-tuning argument or the idea that this universe is so finely tuned for, for life in general and human life in particular. And number three, because of the reality of objective values. The idea of objective beauty. The idea of objective morality. And how that works together with everything, including things like math and logic, that all of these different aspects fit together so incredibly well. Now, you know, um, Polkinghorn, as, as, as much as I appreciate his work, he, he, he holds a position called um, uh, Old Earth Creationism. And there's a lot of people who hold to Old Earth Creationism. And, and you know, they, uh, you know, they um, hold this position that the, the, the age of the, of, uh, the world is, is much older than the uh, six to 10,000 years that Scripture seems to purport. And they base this on on their understanding of science. And, you know, and so when you look across the spectrum, there's, there's a number of these different ministries that look at, at faith and science. And, and the first of these is the Institute for Creation Research and uh, with, with, with uh, Henry Morris. Now, I did not meet Henry Morris the, the, the first, but I, I know the son, um, um, Henry Morris II, and uh, who's the current leader of the Institute for Creation Research. In fact, his, his, his granddaughter, Emily, I, I taught uh, when I was at Criswell College. Um, and, you know, I, I really think that they, they, they have the right perspective. And another organization that I really appreciate that really came out of the Answers in Genesis, uh, out of the Institute for Creation Research, is, is Answers in Genesis. And there's a lot of valuable information that you can get from them. Yet another group is the Discovery Institute, and one of their big ideas is intelligent design. Okay, they 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 look at the problem of evolution, and they find it problematic that it has many scientific problems that just don't stand up. That that evolution really can't answer. There's another one led by another friend of mine, Hugh Ross. Now Hugh. You may have heard of before. Hugh um, is, is also a physicist and, and just one of the, the nicest, I mean, one of the smartest guys you'll ever meet, but one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. And, you know, the thing is, Hugh is an old earth creationist, and, you know, there's a lot that, that I agree with Hugh on, but there's a lot I don't agree with Hugh on. And he's led an organization called Reasons to Believe. And they're old earth creationists, and, you know, it's, you know, so I find some of their views problematic. And, and, you know, for a period of three years when I was teaching at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, we were having meetings uh, led by our, our provost then, uh, Dr. Craig Blazing. And, and all of these groups and one or two others would meet to, to try to come to some consensus 
on the right view of, of faith and science. And we did this, and it was a closed meeting just between the people in that group for three years. Now, you know, we, I don't think we really moved anybody from their position. But we all agreed that God was in charge and that God had ordered things. But, you know, in the end, it's not about science. In the end, it's about faith. In the end, when you look at Genesis, Genesis is the first of five books that Moses wrote, the Pentateuch. And why did he, he write these books? Because, well, he had led the people out of Egypt. He'd led the Hebrews out of Egypt. How long were they in Egypt? 400 years. You know what the people knew about Yahweh? Not much. They'd lived in Egypt for 400 years, and yeah, I'm sure they knew something about their God, but they knew that they were enslaved, and what they also thought was probably thought was that, you know, the, the, the Hebrew God is not as strong as the Egyptian gods. And let me tell you, you live in that kind of society, well, you're going to learn about their theology, their worldview, their understanding of reality. They probably knew all about Ra and Horus and all the other Egyptian gods. And so Moses... When he wrote the Pentateuch, he had a few things in mind, okay? Number one, he was trying to give them a history of the nation of Israel. Here's something else. He was trying to prevent them from worshiping other gods. In fact, let's take a quick look at some um, scripture about that. Let's turn to um, Deuteronomy. Let's go to chapter 4. Now let's go to verse 15. Diligently watch yourselves because you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you out of the fire at Horeb. So, you don't act corruptly and make an idol for yourselves in the shape of any figure of male or female form or the form of any animal on the earth or any winged creature that flies in the sky or any creature that crawls on the ground or any fish in the waters under the earth. When you look to the heavens and see the sun, moon, and stars, all the stars in the sky, do not be led astray to bow and worship to them and serve them. The Lord your God has provided them for all the people everywhere under heaven. But the Lord selected you and brought you out of Egypt's iron furnace to be a people for his inheritance as you are today. You know what? Those other nations, they want to worship these idols. They want to worship these false gods. Fine. But you, Israel, you worship me because I chose you I brought you out of the fiery furnace of Egypt. I want you to worship Yahweh and him alone. Let's take a look at another one. Let's go to um, Deuteronomy verse, uh, uh, chapter 28. 
And let's start with verse 1. Now, if you faithfully obey the word of the Lord your God and are capable, uh, careful to follow all his commands that I'm giving you today, the Lord will pull you out. Put you far above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings will come and overtake you because you obey the Lord your God. You'll be blessed in the city. You'll be blessed in the country. Your offspring will be blessed. And the lands, your land's produce and the offspring of your livestock, including your young of your herds and newborn of your flocks, your basket and your kneading bowl will be blessed. You'll be blessed when you come in. You'll be blessed when you go out. The Lord will cause the enemies who rise up before you to be defeated before you. They will march out against you from one direction but flee from you in several directions. And this goes on, you know, for another few verses all the way to verse 14. And I mean, this is some great stuff. You know, um, he should have been able to sell this easy. But you know what? He says, but if you don't, let's take a look at verse 15. But if you do not obey the Lord your God by carefully following all his commands and statutes that I'm giving you today, all these curses will, will overtake you. You'll be cursed in the city. You'll be cursed in the country. Your basket and kneading bowl will be cursed. Your offspring will be cursed. Your land will be your produce. The young of your herds and newborn of your flocks. You'll be cursed when you come out. And you'll be cursed when you go in. And it goes on from there all the way. If you look at the end of the chapter to verse 68 of curses. Now, you know, if it's me... I think I'll take the first deal. <laughs> now, let's take a look at um, let's take a look at um, Deuteronomy chapter twenty-nine. Uh, let's see. Let's go to verse 22. Future generations of your children who follow you and the foreigner who comes from a distant country will see the plagues of the land and the sickness that the Lord has inflicted on it. All its soil will be a burning waste of sulfur and salt unsown, producing nothing with no plant growing on it, just like the fall of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zebuim, which the Lord demolished in his fierce anger. All the nations will ask, why has the Lord done this to this land? Why this intense outburst of anger? Then the people will answer is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Because they began to serve other gods, bowing in worship to gods they had not known, gods that the Lord had not permitted them to worship. Therefore, the Lord's anger uh, burned against this land, and he brought every curse written on this book on it. Okay. So he's trying to give them a history. Then he's trying to warn them against worshiping other gods. And here's the other thing. He's trying to make crystal clear to them just how great Yahweh is. Now, you know... Um, you know, I, I, I used to be a, a big Oakland Raider fan, you know. And, and one of my favorite players was Bo Jackson, okay. Anybody remember those days? I mean, that guy was incredible. I mean, if he got in, if you got in his way, he was going to run over you. He was, he was unstoppable. And have you ever seen some of the stuff he did when he was playing baseball? 
how he'd run up the side of the field, the the fence to, to catch a ball. I mean, incredible. And and then one of the things he would do when he would strike out is he'd just break the bat over his knee, okay? A number of other players tried that. It didn't work out so good for them. And, you know, when you compare the gods of the other nations to, to, to Yahweh, it was not like comparing them to Bo Jackson. He was far beyond them. It wasn't even close. Not the same universe. And this is what he's trying to communicate to them. So, let's go to Genesis chapter 1. And let's look at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating the water from the water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse sky. Evening came, then the morning, the second day. Then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the water he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And it was so. The earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And And God saw that it was good. Evening came, then morning, the third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. And they will serve as signs for seasons, for days, for years. And these will be the lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night, as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, to rule the day and the night, and to separate the light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, then morning, the fourth day. Then God said, let the water swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. And he also created every winged creature according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the sea and let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening came, then morning, the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that crawl, wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And so God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, livestock according to their kinds, and the creatures that crawl on the earth according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, that they will rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. 
God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. And God saw, Look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth, and every tree whose fruit contains seed, this will be food for you. For all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, for every creature that that crawls on the earth, everything that has breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that all he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then the morning, the sixth day. So the heavens and earth were completed in them, and everything in them were completed. And on the seventh day, God had completed his work, which he had done, and he rested. On the seventh day, from all the work that he had done, God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all the work of his creation. Now, a lot of times, when people study the creation, they read just chapter 1. And the reason that they do is because, well, you know, chapter 1 ends, um, what's the verse there? Verse 31, okay? Well, you know, there's this guy, he was Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langton, in 1227, he took it upon himself to number the chapters throughout the Bible. And, you know, he was a smart guy. I mean, mean, after all, he was the Archbishop of Canterbury, right? But here's the thing. There are some things he did not know. He did not understand the concept of Hebrew rhetoric, okay? Because one of the things that the Hebrews did was they put literary structures in their text. And so if you understand that, one of the things that you understand is they frame an argument. They frame a section of scripture. And here's how they do so. Verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So everything that follows that is an explanation of that. And here's where that ends, technically. Chapter 2, verse 1. So the heavens and earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, and on it he rested from all the work of his creation. Now, one of the things that you find when you look at Hebrew rhetoric is there's this literary structure called a chiasm, or a chiastic structure, okay? So the beginning and the end will match. And then you look for the center point. And the center point is the main idea that they want you to get. Okay. So, in this section of scripture, he's got, he covers seven days. What's the middle? What day is it? It's day four. Okay. So let's take a look at what's in day four again. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for seasons and for days and years. They will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, 
the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth to rule the day and the night to separate the light from the darkness and God saw that it was good and evening came and then morning the fourth day. Now, some of you reading this are wondering, okay, why is this the main point? And here's why. See, when you look at all the ancient cosmologies, when you look at how all those guys in the ancient Near East and in many pre-modern cultures look at reality, they view the sun, the moon, the stars as what? Divine. They look at them as gods. Okay? And when you look at other ancient Near Eastern cosmologies, here's one of the things that you find. Okay? Well, you, you always find these sort of elements that you see here in this, in this section of Scripture. But here's how this one is different from all the others. Number one, God exists outside of creation. Okay? Number two, God acts with absolute power and authority. Okay? When you look at how all these other cosmogenies happened, there is always some group of gods, and they are fighting, and there's one who leads, and there's this great battle, and that forms the rest of the universe. Well, that's not what you see here. God does this simply by the power of his word. There's no battle here. Here's something else. God makes everything so that it is good. What do we mean by good? What we mean is that it fulfills his purpose. There is a design. See, the, 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 the idea of, of goodness, you know, when you look at the Hebrew word tob or tob, it means according to function, purpose, and it carries with it the idea of orderliness, fitness, and beauty. It fulfills the purpose that God wanted it to have. And here's the last thing about this cosmogony. God acts alone. He does this by himself, not with the help of other gods, so here's one of the things that he is showing here in day four. Not only does God do this by himself, not only does he do it by the power of his word, but he puts the sun, the moon, the stars in their place. They don't have any power. He has it all. And as such, who should they worship? Here's a really amazing thing. The Lord proved to them over and over again that they should worship him. He, he offers them so much. But what happens after Joshua dies? Well, you see in, ju you see in Judges... You know, they start looking around. Hey, you know, those, those are, what those guys are worshiping is kind of cool. I think I'll participate in that. 
and they wind up enslaved. All the curses that God warned them against, they got. And then God would have to send a judge to rescue them and bring them back. And you think they'd learn the lesson? No. They did it again and again and again because, as it says, every man did what was right in his own eyes because there was no king. Well, folks, we do have a king. Our king is Yahweh. Our king is not some temporal guy wearing a crown. He's eternal. And he has ordered everything in all of creation for our good. Now, folks, you and I need to trust him. Now, let me deal with something real quick. Um, you know, the old earth creationists make a big deal out of the use of the word day. You know, so the word day, when you look throughout the whole Bible, it occurs 2,438 times. And it's very few instances where it means a long period. Most of the time, the vast majority of the time, it means a 24-hour period. Okay? When you look at the Old Testament, you know, there are, well, it's used 2,000 times, over 2,000 times. Okay, Moses, in the Pentateuch, the first five books, he uses the word day 295 verses. And some of those times, he uses them, you know, multiple times. And when you get to the book of Genesis, there's 56 verses where he uses the word day. And I got to tell you, he uses it pretty consistently as a 24-hour period. Okay? Let's take a look at verse 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the, the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was an evening, there was a morning, one day. Okay? So one of the things that he does with each day is he frames it with a morning and an evening. How many hours do you think that that takes? Want to take a wild guess? 24. And just in case you missed that, he ties the light to what? The day. And he ties the dark to what? The night. Hmm. Day, night. Together, how many hours is that? 24. Okay. Well, you might say, well, you know, okay, so that's the way it is there. Okay, well, let's take a look at the next verse. He says, verse 6. Then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters and separating the water from the water. So God made the expanse 
and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse sky. And the evening came, and then the morning the second day. So once again, he frames it with a morning and an evening. And if, you know, what he says in the previous verses about light and darkness hold, and I think it does, he's talking about a 24-hour day. Okay? Verse 9. Then the Lord said, Let the water under the sky be gathered in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the water he called seas. And God saw that it was good. By the way, um, you know, the thing about the sea, he, he separates the seas, okay, from the, from the land, okay? One of the things you find in a lot of ancient cosmologies is, is you know, you have these people who believe that the, the sea is a god that, that, you know, that, that their hero has to fight against, okay? Well, God separates the seas. He does that, just does that, with the force, with the power of his word. Now, you know, when you look at Hebrew thought, the seas were not good things. Okay, how many of you, Remember all those great stories about the Hebrew Navy. Remember those stories? Come on, Jeff. I know you remember. <laughs> I, I know you know those stories, right? I don't know those stories either. Now that I think about it. You know why I don't know those stories? You know why you don't know those stories? Because there aren't any. In fact, when you look throughout the Bible, water is a it's an example of chaos, of sin, of disorder. And this is why when you go to Revelation, let's turn to Revelation. Oh, these guys are just laughing at me because they're in my Sunday school class. They know where I'm going. Let's go to Revelation chapter 21. Uh, let's see. Huh? 21.1. Oh, yeah, there it is. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. See, the sea is representative of sin, disorder. Now stop and think about this. When you look throughout the Bible, you see a number of things, okay? Moses walked through the red, and the people walked through the Red Sea because God separated the water, showing his power over the forces of sin and chaos, okay? What does Jesus do? He walks on the water. Over and over again, we see that God is superior to everything. Okay. Let's get back to Genesis. Um, 
Yeah. So we were looking at the seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit and seed according to their kinds. And it was so. The earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit, seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And evening and morning the third day. Now, one of the things we saw before we take a look here at the fourth day again puts in the, the, the sun, the moon, the stars, is, hey, he started this light and day thing. This He started this really with the first day. So once again, here's the problem of trying to tie science to this, you know, because, you know, because guys I know like Hugh Ross, and, and, and I'm not knocking Hugh because he's a great guy, but here's the thing. Hugh will tell you, well, there was nothing, and then there was a big, on the first day, there was a big bang, and there was all this light. Well, that'd be work great if it weren't for the fact that there weren't any stars. And God says that he did, you know, he produced this light apart from the stars. Apart from anything else. So when you get to verse 14, and it's talking about the fourth day, one of the things that you see is he ties the sun, the moon, the stars to this order he's already created with the day and the light and the night and the darkness. He ties the sun, moon, and stars to what he's already created. And this is one of the problems when we try to read science in the scripture. Folks, we have to look at this through the lens of faith. Okay? So, one more thing I want to look at is this. Um, we've already looked at, you know, his creation of the living creatures. But when you get to verse 26, he says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They'll rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. So one of the things that he is doing is he's really setting up a creation order here, okay? He's setting men over animals and over everything else because they're made after his image. And in the household, he sets up an order that's implicit here because he starts off with the man. In the next verse, he talks about the man and the woman, okay? If we don't understand this, we get so many things wrong. You know, it, it's amazing how you'll have all these laws to protect, you know, baby seals or, I don't know, whales. I don't know. But human life in the womb can be wiped out like that. 
they have just ignored all the things that God has set up from the very beginning. They're acting with a complete disregard or knowledge to the order that God has established. In the household, you have the man, you have the woman, and you have the children. And when you look at how everyone understood that in the pre-modern worldview, it's reflective of the order that God established in creation, the sun, the moon, the skies, okay, the stars. There's an order to things that's reflected in the household. And, you know, um, many of our problems today are because, well, we, we act with a worldview that's really in conflict with what God has established. Last thing I want to cover is this. On the seventh day, God completes his creation. And then he rests. Why does he rest? Because he's tired? I mean, if it were you or me, you know, I'd be tired. Wouldn't you be, be tired, Jeff? Maybe. Well, okay, yeah, Jeff. Yeah, he's another case. But God rests because he's done. God rests because he's completed everything. Now, is there a model for you and for me? Yes. He's established a day of rest for us. He did that resting for us. You know, um, what it all comes down to is this, folks. We can choose to look at everything that we see around us with these temporal eyes that we have. Or we could choose to look at the big picture. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18 says, we look not to what is seen, because what is seen is only temporal. But we look at what is unseen. Because what is unseen is eternal. Folks, are you looking at eternity? Or just the here and just the now? Are you looking at things through an eye, through eyes of flesh? Are you looking at things the way lost people do? I hope not. You know, there used to be the same. About some people, you'd say, well, you know, they're so heavenly-minded, they're of no earthly good. The sad truth about things today is that in most churches, most people are so earthly-minded that they are of no heavenly good. I am. Um, I was telling my Sunday school class about this song by Kansas, and I can just never remember the words to this one. And it's uh, Relentless by Kansas off their 
audio-vision albums. I'm, I'm a big fan of Kansas, in case you haven't figured it out. It says, because a change has come upon me, and I'm surely not the same. There's so much more than what we feel and live every day. Relentless, unchanging. Though the world is still before me now, I'm seeing forever. I will keep my heart and mind with you so joyously. I'm waiting for today, for the day. What day is he talking about? The day that we are with him in eternity. He says, in a single timeless moment, when the old was cast away, the new was born into a world of simple joy. And my life is still for living, though it's seen through different eyes, and the knowledge of the truth's a burden easy to bear. You know, when you see things with this eternal vision, it makes this life just that much easier. I've got to tell you, I don't know how people make it without Christ. If you don't know him today, now is the time of salvation. Now is the time to get things right. If you don't know him today, respond. You know, we've got We've got a wonderful pastor. Our, our elders and deacons, they're, they're just the best guys. If you don't know him today, come talk with one of us because we'd be glad to introduce you to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, we just pray that you'd be with with everyone here. Lord, for those who don't know you, Lord, we pray that they would seek you today, that they would be found by you today. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, we pray that each of us would just draw closer to you and become the men and women that you would have us to be, to be the children that you would have us to be. Lord, help us to glorify your name in all that we say and in all that we do. Lord, guide us. We say in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.